expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. There you go, sir. I think you'll find that more to your liking. Very much appreciated, Mr. O'Brien. Don't mention it, sir. Unfortunately, there are plenty of replicators around the station that still need looking after. You all right, Chief? Well, I'm just a bit hot. The environmental controls must be acting up again. Send my regards to Mrs. O'Brien. Jake tells me she's a wonderful teacher. Oh, that's nice to hear, sir. She's flower units about the lad herself. Excuse me? Sir? What was that you just said? She's quite fond of the lad herself. I'm glad to hear it. Very good, sir. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, October 18, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just Right. Fade into colour, colour into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Five one nine six six one thirty six hundred is a number you can call in to talk about just about anything today. It looks like from all the subjects we'll be covering on our show today, because a lot of people emailed us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, which is something you can do yourself. And who knows, we might take your letter and make a show of it, which is what basically we've put together today is a show created by our, our listeners, isn't it, Robert? It's all commentary. And, and we were looking for a theme. We're going to be talking about everything from credibility to authority, the Communist Registered Nurses Association, uh, trust, faith, language. Um, and we were thinking perhaps the theme was definition. What do you mean by that? Because that's really where we're starting. The underlying mm-hmm. theme to all of our comments today... And we didn't plan it that uh, way. No, it's, <laughs> it's, it's really interesting, is epistemology. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by gay marriage, by freedom, by democracy, by Islam... It's all about definitions and understanding. And so I guess a good place to to start off with is listener Bill's letter who wrote to us a couple weeks back uh, on our show where we talked about, uh, you were talking about Aristotle's fallacies. The argument sketch. And the argument sketch, which of course we started the show off with. Yes, I am. No, I'm not. And he writes, very interesting Uh, A a longer-than-normal letter, but it's very interesting. Great show last week, one that illustrated something I think it likely that neither of you have given much thought to before. The limitations of English for clear communication. I don't know about that. I think we think about that all the time. Constantly. (laughs) But uh, nevertheless, the argument sketch is a great illustration of that since it displayed both meanings of the word (coughs) argument given in the Oxford English Dictionary. The closest thing there is to an authority regarding English in contradiction to each other, as can be seen if you look it up on Oxford Dictionaries Online. He, he writes, both the characters in the sketch were right about what the word means. They were just expressing its two different meanings. No clear resolution to their disagreement about what the word means is possible since it has both those meanings. Of course, argument is only one of thousands of English words that mean different things depending on how they're used. The discussion about the effort to redefine competition highlights another serious defect of English. English dictionaries are descriptive, not prescriptive. When the usage of a word changes, as the proponents of not keeping score are trying to achieve with with the word competition, then the definition changes as a consequence. 
What they're trying to pull off has been long established by precedent, so it can't be stopped unless people refuse to follow this well-established precedent, but history doesn't bode well for that idea. The same thing has already happened with other words over time, including another word that the left wants to redefine in this manner. As Paul McKeever has noted, there's a move afoot to redefine the word bully as well. As it happens, Oxford Dictionaries and the word bully, this word has already gone through the process once before. Its original 16th century use was a term of endearment applied to either sex. Then over time, its meanings morphed into the one we learned as kids through a change in usage. Even among those who would oppose these redefinitions, it's widely accepted that A, that's how English works, and B, that's the very nature of a living language. Such people routinely use various words like liberal, conservative, capitalism, native, etc., in their corrupted sense rather than in their proper meaning. Given these facts, all the left has to do is pervert the plain meaning of English words, uh, or sorry, to per pervert the plain uh, meaning of English words is to bring about a change of their usage. Once they accomplish that, the dictionaries will follow suit. It may take longer for the OED to do so, but likely in time they will too, since they have before. Even getting all English speakers to follow the OED, a highly unlikely prospect to say the least, would not be sufficient to stop the rot. Oh, bully for Bill. <laughs> well, you know, I agree with almost all of Bill's observations, and I even agree that with his description of the nature of the problem when we, you know, when we use unclear language. It's, it's a problem, isn't it? If two well, people are using the same word to mean two different things. Like I said, this is what this show is yeah. about. So, but what Bill's looking for in terms of a clear, concise language that never changes, that's known as a dead language. And that's what they're called. Dead languages are those languages whose symbolism or concepts or definitions do not change over time. Uh, two that come to mind immediately are Latin and Greek. Another two in a different category are mathematics. And perhaps music might be the third one. Um, which is why music was the form of communication used with the aliens in close encounters of the third kind. No. <laughs> You're looking at me. See, there, I just twisted the use of a word again. But English is a living language, and real languages evolve from their use. One cannot create a concept before its necessity is made apparent in use, don't you think? Isn't that how it works? Well, of course. Yeah, you know, like, why, how would you invent a word first and then tell people you guys use, use this word means that, if that doesn't even exist yet? Well, it sounds you know? as if Bill what wants were people to... people calling that before? It sounds as if Bill wants a dictionary to prescribe, in other words, to tell people to use this, yes. much like the French and the Russians did in the Soviet Union, or the Russians well, did in the Soviet know, Union. You must a, use this word here. There is a case for that. And, of course, that's in law. Law. And, and in medicine, where they mm -hmm. use Latin and Greek to make sure... That there is no equivocation. Using yes. aspirin with Tylenol. Exactly. <laughs> right? Um, but English evolves from its use. And the early dictionaries that were created and published by, say, Webster's, Oxford, and even Funk and Wagnalls, they set their own standards based upon the use of the terms at the time of their publications. This, is, this principle extends beyond dictionaries. Um, you know, coming from Europe, my background, my parents told me what it was like living in Germany before they had Hochdeutsch and had a standard. And you could go from town to town and speak two different dialects of the same language and not understand what they're saying 30 miles down the street. And uh, but so, they, so the German government created a standard language that everyone in their jurisdiction could 
communicate through. It didn't mean they had to. But they're merely standards, not absolutes. Now, my thing about prescribing a language almost, to me, it almost nullifies the purpose of that language. Written languages are evolved from the living concepts and living sounds that people make to represent those concepts. We don't just say, ow, and I won't say ouch like we had had our argument yesterday, but we don't say ow when we hurt ourselves just because that word is in the dictionary. It's a natural vocal response to pain. It's a very human sounding. It's not my first vocal response to pain. Well, maybe not. (laughs) You've learned other words since, but you had to learn them. (laughs) That word we can't say on the radio. (laughs) And, of course, there are words we pick up from other languages that we don't change, like potpourri, deja vu. Other, That's what know. I love about the English language is that, according to uh, some sources I've read, there's over 100,000 words in the English language in the Oxford English Dictionary. By the way, the Oxford English Dictionary is so huge. It has so many volumes. If you ever saw in the library, it's several feet long in volumes. And, but the average person only speaks a few thousand words in his vocabulary. Yeah, I have a set of uh, the Oxford that, uh, it's two volumes, but they shrunk the, mm-hmm. the pages to four pages on a page, and you need a magnifying glass to yes. see them, right? So that's how they managed to fit it into two Bible-thin volumes, and they're huge, too. So there's a lot, and that was 20 years ago. Who knows how many words we've added since, especially because of technology. iPad. <laughs> and, and things like that, yes. In a living society, new words are constantly brought into use while old words fall out of use, though a record of, of their etymology is always kept. This is particularly true in the field of humanities, where relationships are constantly changing. In the technological field and in the field of social human relationships, as the recent debates over terms like, and you brought it up, gay marriage would attest. Now, me personally, I like to mix concepts and words. Sometimes I create a new word or term that clearly describes its meaning, but couldn't be found in any dictionary anywhere. If you want to see some of these, just check some of the titles we give to our episodes online. We play with words. We yes. put two things together and, and see if the, if the reader gets the point of what we're saying. Uh, now, of course, those words might find themselves in a dictionary someday if they came into popular use. And I think that's one of the criteria that dictionaries use to determine what is a standard word for something. Um, You know, Obamacare is a word like the one I've described. It's come into use. Obama himself likes it, and we all kind of know what it means, don't we? Mm -hmm. It has has a meaning. But it's a... What's that um, portmanteau? It's two words put together. Yes. Obama and health care. Right? Uh-huh. And... A lot of new words are clearly, yes. And it's just a, it, it's a faddish kind of thing, and we might forget about the word entirely. Uh, what was that word economically that they used to use? Um, that stagflation. Remember that oh, word? Oh yes, yes. To describe stagnant inflation. Which yeah, inflation sense, happening yeah. at the same time as high unemployment, hmm. and that they still use that phrase. It's now an accepted term, and it's in the economic dictionaries. Yes, you don't hear it too much, but there you go. So. My recommendation, and of course when it comes to any definition, the devil is in the details. My recommendation on the language problem is to basically read Ayn Rand's introduction to objectivist epistemology. It's one of her thinnest books and the most concise. And there is, to my knowledge, nothing better available on the subject of language and concept formation. That's what that book's really about. All the basic principles are there in a nutshell, and the good news is that Rand herself wrote the book in acknowledgement of the problem that Bill was raising here. That's why she had to write a book like that. And, you know, all of this made me think of the biblical story, you know, the Tower of Babel, 
which again re- reflects on a, a political reality more than a, 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 a mystical or religious one. But you can imagine how a language would collapse, and Rand postulated this, if the same words had different meanings to different people. This is a problem we have all the time. Right wing, left wing. Uh, but the one thing I do agree with Bill on is the use of the word, for example, liberal, conservative. Um, remember in my interview with uh, mm-hmm. Christopher Monkton, I used the word liberal, and he says, don't use that word in that sense. It means this, right? And I said, well, over here, you know, the liberal party has usurped the definition of that or word even to the, mean this. Even the colors that are associated with each side. When I, when we were speaking to Ann Coulter, and I asked her about how come uh, the liberals down there wear blue. Yes. <laughs> you know, and, and, and the Republicans wear, are red. Yeah. Yes. So it's really confusing if you're not aware of the social environment in which all these things are going on. Yeah. But, you know, there's a, there's a case to that. I've often wondered if in politics we could somehow... Uh, discipline our politicians when they are having a critical debate of importance to people to to be forced like lawyers like doctors to use certain terms that mean mm. certain things before they go into that debate and then maybe you might get a clear debate but i can't see disciplining politicians they're just not uh, that's not a discipline <laughs> no as a matter of fact they're disciplined to obf- obfuscate and yes. to confuse but in any case can ma- imagine if how different things would be if every word was different to people. You know, it's the biblical story of the Tower of Babel. All communications and social interaction would practically cease, and chaos would ensue. And whenever you see chaos in the world anywhere, you can bet there's a fundamental collapse of language and epistemological principles at the root of it. You know, Rand once said, you know, imagine if the same thing was happening in, that's happening to the language of words, if that was also happening to the language of mathematics and arithmetic. Today, for example, the symbol for number two represents the pure abstraction of a value of two. But tomorrow, the symbol for the number two represents a value of seven, while seven can be interpreted as a four. All of mathematics, she points out, a complete discipline and a complete field of knowledge that we know that relates to reality would collapse. Fascinating. And we would be instantly ignorant of its secrets we would not know about relationships. Because that's all mathematics is, and that's what our language is, too. It's all the study of relationships. And if we did went into that, we'd be going back to the Dark Ages, which is where the left generally likes to lead us. Now, I do want to take a side note here on Bill's comment on the redefinition of the word bully. I think it's very significant. It represents an effort by the left to stifle debate and equate judgment with bullying. That's what they're doing. Megan Walker comes immediately to mind on this issue. Just yesterday, she was holding all cities and communities directly responsible for that so-called online Facebook bullying suicide of that young girl out Mm -hmm. in Vancouver. She went so far as to say that the insensitive comment left by an employee of a store in London called Big and Tall was an act of bullying. But one caller noted, how do you bully a dead person, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, Again, a change in the definition. But she didn't leave it there. She actually said that it's no surprise that this Facebook bully was an employee of a store called Big and Tall because bullies are most likely to be big and tall. <laughs> Isn't that rather generalization uh, I, of pot calling the kettle black? I, I couldn't believe it, and she wasn't called on it. And not surprisingly, she also brought up free speech as being the problem that fuels the bullying issue. Ask, ask City Councilor Dale Henderson who he thinks are the real bullies in our community and who's really being vindictive. Right. Or has he been effectively silenced from criticizing the city's administration and his fellow councillors now? I'm wondering about that. You know, you want, 
I have a look at this this thing. How much bullying comes up? Look, just yesterday's paper. Mm-hmm. MP accused of bullying. What word did he use? He said that somebody was pathetic. There, that's bullying. That's called bullying now. And here's another person who who has written that when he saw the photo of the woman in the lingerie football skimpy uniforms, he says that's an act of bullying. So everybody's using the word bullying in a way to morally condemn something that they don't like and it doesn't really go any further than that they haven't looked at it any further than that it kind of amazes me really so anyways you have this redefinition of the word bullying and she went so far as to say this whole thing about big and tall and the whole the, the whole uh, free speech issue and of course remember that the, that the, the, the late McGinty the late <laughs> premier soon to be gone has made bullying legislation as one of his most treasured priorities which kind of attests to the whole mentality that's driving the agenda in this province and the whole mentality behind the bullying issue. Now, of course, in my humble view, I find both McGinty's and Walker's views on bullying to be offensive and toxic. And their approach to the issue, like our education boards, is extraordinarily wrong and misdirected. I think they're creating more victims of bullying because what they're doing is making and conditioning people to become more sensitive to words and opinions. That's not the right approach to the issue. Blaming and even blaming suicides on things like bullying, which is a non-physical thing, is to consciously and maliciously avoid the real problem because millions of kids are bullied constantly and don't kill themselves. And there's a, there are solutions to bullying and they aren't, you know, shut the bully up per se because that's never going to happen. You can deal with one at a time, but that's, and I'm not suggesting bullying isn't a problem. It is. But what should be a very rare, you know, it's a, it should be a rare and isolated incident. But when it becomes a pattern of mass behavior, significant enough to become a political issue as it is, then I think you just have to look at our government-run institutions for the source of the problem. And I'm thinking mostly about our schools. Now, of course, we've talked about bullying on this show before. And I recall how funny it was that our Leave it to Beaver clip that we used on that broadcast featured a neighborhood bully named McGinty. (laughs) Do you remember that? Yes. (laughs) So whatever one's opinions on bullying, there's no question about the power of certain words which represent concepts. When they're used wisely and justly or even when they're used recklessly and without consideration of their repercussions. Unfortunately, today's ideological trend is to obliterate the distinction between the two uses and in so doing, destroy the language itself. We must always remember words are weapons and words are tools, but they have to be free to be used. When we return on the other side, we'll continue with some more of the feedback that we've gotten from our listeners, which is going to change our subject a little bit in other directions, including... What are we going to get getting into here, Robert? What will be our first? Oh, uh, response to uh, my uh, talk on Muslims facing tomorrow. Okay, we'll be back right after this. Chief. How can I help you, Major? Uh, looks like you're the one who could use a little help. Oh, uh, no, I'm, I'm fine, really. I suppose this isn't a good time to tell you that number three turbo lift has broken down again. Joking, Chief. Major Lark's true pepper. What? Let birds go further loose, maybe. Shout easy play. Chief, you're not making any sense. Round the turbulent quick. Uh. Close the reverse harbor. Try 
sound re reset gleaming. Don't do it a bug. Chief, wait. When? Chief. Introduce myself. Uh, yes, yes, of course. Now, my name is Garrick, a Cardassian by birth, obviously. The only one of us left on this station, as a matter of fact. So, I do appreciate making new friends whenever I can. Now, you are new to this station, I believe. I am, yes. Though I understand you've been here quite a while. Ah, you know of me, then. Would you care for some of this Tarkalian tea? It's very good. You're what? A thoughtful young man. How nice that we've met. <clears throat> you know, some people say that you remained on DS9 as the eyes and ears of your fellow Cardassians. You don't say. Doctor, you're not intimating that I'm some sort of spy, are you? I wouldn't know, sir. Ah, an open mind, the essence of intellect. As you may also know, I have a clothing shop nearby, so if you should require any apparel or simply wish, as I do, for a bit of enjoyable company now and then, I'm at your disposal, Doctor. You're very kind, Mr. Garrick. Oh, it's just Garrick. Plain, simple Garrick. Now, good day to you, Doctor. I'm so glad to have made such an interesting new friend today. You won't believe who just sat down next to me in the replimat. Major, upper pylon three will be shut down for maintenance for 48 hours. The spy! Garak, the Cardassian! We don't know for a fact Garrick's a spy, Doctor. He is. You should have heard him. He, he introduced himself, and, and, and he struck up conversation just like that. He was making contact with me, with me of all people. What do you think he might want from you, Julian? I don't know. Federation medical secrets? Rest assured, they're safe with me, Commander. I'm sure they are, Dr. Bashir. In fact, Chief O'Brien, I think you should place a monitoring device on me. Just in case. He, he's up to something? I don't think that'll be necessary, Doctor. Just be very cautious. Commander, we have a small craft taking evasive action. Cardassian war vessel in pursuit. In pursuit. Suspicion, mistrust. That's what Julian Bashir felt against this Cardassian. By the way, that's Cardassian, not Kardashian. <laughs> um, Garrick. And he thought all Cardassians to be... Um, potential spies and this seems to be a trend going in our society here where we are dealing with Muslims there's a lot of us out there who treat all Muslims all of them with suspicion and mistrust and a couple of weeks ago on September 30th there was a um, launch of a, a new group in Canada called Muslims Facing Tomorrow I reported it on it uh, the following week on this show and we've gotten some feedback about that new group which is a voice for, quote, moderate Muslims. One of the responses was from Aisha. 
And she writes, Dear Robert and Robert, Firstly, I'd like to thank you for giving a voice to peaceful Muslims on your radio show. I was also in that room on Sunday and felt a surge of affinity that I've never experienced in the ten years since I converted to Islam. There is so much politicization and misinformation that an accurate understanding is a hard-won thing, and speaking out brings abuse from both extremists and Islamophobes. Your support and open-mindedness is welcomed by those of us seeking to educate and inform so people can develop an opinion free from political and religious propaganda, and in doing so, remove the platform for extremism that exists in the consciousness of the greater population. Thank you for those words, Aisha. Now, to contrast that, I received um, some communication from Tom. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> now, Tom writes, Until you interview Ali Sina from faithfreedom.org, author of Understanding Muhammad, an ex-Muslim who advocates the elimination of Islam from the world, you will continue to fall for this unrealistic garbage from self-deluding nominal Muslims. They don't know enough about the religion they claim to adhere to and wish to reform to be able to hold their argument together under serious, knowledgeable criticism. He went on in a, in a, a subsequent communication to say, um, before I get to that, I should just <laughs> tell you how I responded to it. Okay. Hi, Tom. I haven't forgotten your suggestion of Ali Sanya, and, and I've been following Faith Freedom for years, which I have. It's actually a very interesting site with a lot of information on there about Islam. I do think you make a good counterpoint to the uh, opinions expressed by people like uh, Dr. Zudi Jasser, who I talked about a couple of weeks ago. And I find your characterization of these moderate Muslims as self-deluding and nominal interesting, though. I've been doing some research on my own and find that even though we might like to lump all Muslims into a single group, Reality dictates otherwise. And then this is where we get into definitions and epistemology again. I don't know how many people out there realize when they're talking about Islam. They're talking about either an ideology or a religion. And it's a lot like Christianity. Do people know that the original Bible doesn't exist? As a matter of fact, it doesn't even it's not even a book. Yeah. It is a collection of books. The Old Testament, depending on which uh, sect you're talking about in, in Judish, uh, Judaism or Christianity, can either have like 66 books in their Bible or 84. It, 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 there's the original Hebrew and Aramaic um, writings of the Bible don't even exist anymore. They've been translated into Greek. The Greek has been translated into Latin. The Latin, Latin has been translated into an Old English. And now there are uh, more recent Bibles out there which uh, use the vernacular. Here I thought upgrades only were something new in the new technology. <laughs> <laughs> My point being, this is the same thing with Islam. There is no current Quran which uh, was written by the hand of Muhammad. The uh, earliest Quran that is extant, uh, I believe, comes from the 9th century, hundreds of years after the death of Muhammad. And that and other uh, Qurans were written down based on the readings of what are called readers, actually, people who memorized the Quran from earlier uh, transcriptions, and then they wrote them down. And there are differences in Qurans that are, for example, taught in Indonesia, from those taught in Africa, from those taught in Saudi Arabia. So to say that Islam is one thing and one thing only is a matter of interpretation. It certainly is not. A lot of people out there 
interpret these writings differently. Do they follow the Hadith versus the, the uh, uh, Sunnah versus the uh, Quran? And of well, course, then that issue is not a matter of interpretation. It's a fact that there are different versions of Islam. Yes. Okay, so you can't, certainly you can't argue are. that they're all one. That is correct. Um, and so, and so to, for Tom to say, you know, Islam is what it is, and um, Ali Sina says that it should be abolished, like, like that's going to happen, a, a billion and a half Muslims are going to get rid of, you know, how are you going to do that, convert them all or kill them all? It doesn't make sense. So what you have to do is you have to live with them, you have to tr uh, try to understand them, and you have to support the ones who are peaceful and not support the ones, and even kill the ones who are trying to kill you. That only makes sense. But it's a matter of definition and understanding, and that is epistemology. And that is what we're talking about the, uh, today. It seems like all of our feedback has to deal with understanding the definition of your terms. And Ayn Rand said this, define your terms. Yes. That's what she said, define your terms. Before you begin any discussion on anything, define what you mean when you talk about Islam. What do you mean when you say moderate Muslim, Sharia, you know? Islamification. What do you mean by these terms? Then we can have an intelligent discussion about um, how to deal with a perceived problem. So we're at the bottom of the hour. We'll take a little break here, and when we come back, we're going to be talking Actually, about what, Bob. Do I have a, Do I have a minute to squeeze one more? Squeeze in? one in there. Yes. We got We got a letter from uh, Yitzi, who ha who is a regular oh, yes. writer and listener, and he he wrote us quickly about uh, uh, the caller we had a couple weeks ago. When no, you Yitzi's were talking from about, uh, the Netherlands, isn't he? I think so. But he, we were, you were talking about Muslims uh, facing tomorrow, mm -hmm. and he writes about a caller who called in on the show, and that caller's name was Rob, incidentally. So he says, on Rob's call, people believing in one specific supernatural thing is not a problem. The problem is people accepting a supernatural means of knowledge is valid without the specific supernatural ideas they hold would not have been accepted in the first place, without which, you know. Which leads me to a question, he says. He says he knows of several organizations set up to spread objectivist ideas in specific areas. Why has he never heard of one with the specific purpose of spreading objectivist epistemology? Now, of course, we do that implicit in our material, but that's not what we're doing. I think because that would be the purview of only those who originate the philosophy, which is actually what they are doing. They do do that. Uh, but it might not be as specialized as you might desire, because there's really not a lot to say about epistemology. Uh, it only needs to be said once, and we almost said it already. You know, in Ayn Rand's book, Objectivist Epistemology, you, there's not that much to say about it. But, you know, and he writes, if there's one field to which people would respond with questions rather than morally charged assertions, wouldn't it be epistemology? Even a fundamentalist Muslim would probably not call for my head if I told him that concept formation depends on measurement omission. <laughs> well, I'm thinking, yeah, and he wouldn't understand your statement or care. Mm -hmm. If he was determined to kill you, the measurement omission argument is not going to save your life. You know, it doesn't work that way. And then he says, on the subject of Muslims hiding their faith, as far as I know, it's only something they do when they're threatened, in which case they're the only ones out of the Abrahamic trio who has the right idea. Objectivists may also know this as the practice of lying your ass off when someone puts a gun against your head. <laughs> and then again, he, re he, he responded a week later, adding, he says, Oi, I didn't know that there were Muslims who interpreted that practice in a way that actively encourages lying. Mm -hmm. Now, that was in response to Christine Williams alerting us to that fact, right, that there were some week. sects that did that mm -hmm. too. And then he suggests, on sound bites mentioning the Ferengi, they're quite fictional species. I think their rules of acquisition alone could fuel a whole episode. Well, that's something Robert and I are actually thinking 
thinking about, and who knows, we might do that on a future episode. But right now, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with some talk about health care. Artie, if this is you, man, you win. I, this is the best gag you've ever pulled. I'm not Artie. Went to a lot of trouble to make it a comfortable interview. You misspelled it, you know. What? I- interview. Uh, in your note, it's, uh, it, it's, it's I, but it's I before E. Give me a break. A few things I got right. I put summer before winter, didn't I? You're scared. Well, sure. But look, if this is a joke, it's gone too far. It's no joke. How come you've got such a, I mean, just a voice, like everybody's? Empathy. I'm talking to you in a way you can accept. I'm relating. I don't like to brag, but if I appeared to you just as God, how I really am, what I really am, your mind couldn't grasp it. Look, I think you made a mistake. I'm not religious. So? Well, I'm not one of your believers. And I sure as heck don't believe this. That's why I showed up. Too many non-believers. But I, but I read in an article that religion is on the upswing. Religion is easy. I'm talking about faith. You're going to help me change that. Me? I, I don't belong to any church. Neither do I. Go back to work. I don't want you to get in trouble. Thank you. We'll talk on the way. How? Trust me. Like it says on the money. The debate over private health services in Canada has been raging this summer, ever since the Supreme Court's decision in June, striking down a ban on private health insurance in Quebec. The problem with, uh, with private surgical centers and the, the proliferation of private clinics for medically necessary services is that, in general, it drains resources away from the public system. We have a shortage of medical specialists. We have a shortage of surgeons. We have a shortage of radiologists. We have a shortage of nurses. And when you open a private clinic, we've seen it happen just in the Utawa region around Ottawa. When they opened a private MRI clinic, they came to the Ottawa hospital and poached the radiologists. Now, can you explain to me how that's going to help the waiting time in Ottawa? It doesn't. For pain, usually ice, 15 minutes every hour, okay. and Tylenol. Well, I think the people who say this is the beginning of the two chairmates are partially right. The thing is, we got to preserve our good okay. health system. And by welcome. trying to save it all, we may lose it all. And by trying to give a little bit to everybody, you don't give enough to anybody. And it's contrary to the spirit of how health services are provided and organized in Canada. We want the whole spectrum covered. We want the whole person covered and all people covered. And that doesn't work in niche marketing with only profitable services. Those were the voices of Dr. Nicholas Duval, who runs a Duval Healthcare in Montreal, and of Michael McBain, who runs a healthcare coalition lobby group. And that was actually from TVO Studio 2 back in 2005, in August, 
which was when the debate actually occurred. And of course, it was a subject that we talked about with respect to the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario a couple of weeks ago on the show. I got this response from Andrew, who, by the way, I happen to know, knows a lot about the healthcare system, mm-hmm. because I think he's either working in it or someone in his family is. And he writes, I just listened to the recent episode of Just Right and was interested to hear Robert Metz convey his impression that the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, RNAO, is essentially communist. Wow, strong words. But I've said the same thing. They are vehemently opposed to any notion of profit, and this antipathy to profits is motivated by the egalitarian philosophy that dominates the intellectual circles, and nursing is no exception. RNAO is a lobby group, and I'm not sure how they're funded, but I know they are a voluntary organization, and that's true, they are. And I refuse to give them a penny, though I've taken their money in the form of educational reimbursements. I thought they were paid for by voluntary membership, so I'm not sure how to cut the cord approach would apply here, as Bob alluded to on the show. Well, just to make that clear, I want to point out that one does not cut the cord of voluntarism. One cuts the cord of legislative favoritism to, uh, you know, whether it's financial or restrictive in the labor field or whatever, or technology. You don't want to give them favoritism over other groups, because other groups are doing the same things. And he writes, I've sent them numerous letters condemning their stance on various issues. Besides being intransigent in their support of communist health hospital care, I've investigated their claims on other issues such as their attack on the safety and efficacy of physicians' assistance, their unbending support for the universal application of of an inefficient staffing model, and more. Their damning of PAs is rooted in the fact that they are unregulated. I've asked them to provide me with primary sources for their claims, and they only redirect me to a link on their website that makes claims based on unspecified evidence. But what he gets into is that he says they have this whole philosophy of, quote, healthcare and medicine that isn't really based on healthcare or medicine as such. And, he, and, and, and on the, he cites their own website where they write, quote, at every stage of life, healthcare health, sorry, is determined by complex interactions between social and economic factors, the physical environment and individual behavior. These factors are referred to as determinants of health. They do not exist in isolation from each other. It is the combined influence of the determinants of health that determines health status. Now, that's from the the healthcare's own uh, website. And he gives a very long... um, phacaspc.gc slash ca if you want to try it out. But here's what they look at as an example of determinants of health. And this is from, from their own, you know, our, our healthcare people who are looking after us. What, what makes Canadians healthy or unhealthy? This deceptively simple story speaks to the complex set of factors or conditions that determine the level of health of every Canadian. And this is all in quotes. Why is Jason in the hospital? because he has a bad infection in his leg. Why does he have a bad infection? Because he has a cut on his leg and it got infected. But why does he have a cut on his leg? Because he was playing in the junk yard next to his apartment building and there was some sharp, jagged steel there that that he fell on. But why was he playing in the junkyard? Because his neighborhood is kind of run down. A lot of kids play there and there's no one to supervise them. But why does he live in that neighborhood? Because his parents can't afford a nicer place to live. But why can't his parents afford a nicer place to live? Because his dad is unemployed and his mom is sick. But why is his dad unemployed? 
because he doesn't have much education, he can't find a job. But why? And on and on and on it goes. And he says the end result of the above is always, always, that there is some form of inequity that needs to rectify, that needs to be rectified through some program that involves the redistribution of health. Jason needs housing and assistance, after-school programs, more unemployment benefits, educational subsidies, ad infinitum. Isn't that true? Absolutely. I, I, I was looking at this, and I'm thinking, my goodness, how accurate and how how precise in terms but I think what makes this more interesting is it's coming from the horse's mouth mm-hmm. uh, it's just amazing what they're using as a standard of health um, in any case I think Andrew's sending us a lot more information on this and I think it's going to be subject of some more future conversations on our part on this issue you're talking about health uh, distribution you're talking about wealth distribution well, it also redistrib- redistributes the health because what you're doing is you're saying... Um, actually, we're going to hear about that in this next clip, I believe. where um, Or did we hear it in the first one where the doctor says, you know, you're not getting enough health because it's being redistrib- redistributed. Yeah, he said it in the clip that we just passed. Um, you know, the other guy wants egalitarianism right across the board, right? And the doctor wants health care for the individual patient who needs it. And so what happens with, with everyone getting a little bit of something the people who need a lot of something can't get it when they need it. And that's really the problem with our health care. It all began with the idea that the preventative health care model, right? Instead of thinking of sick care, we actually call it health care, which is all we're allowing. We <laughs> Once you're sick, well, forget it. We don't do that. We only do health care. <laughs> <laughs> and that's about how silly it's gotten. And uh, that's it for now. Did you want to add anything else um, for this segment? No? We shall return with more of your feedback after this. Montreal is considered the capital of private health care in Canada. Clinics there provide a wide range of services for cash. We visited a clinic that specializes in orthopedic surgery. The reason why I decided to opt out is basically because I was not able to operate. And at some point, it was too much. I just gave up. I, I could not deal with the pressure of being the only bad guy for everybody because eventually you become every frustration for the patient is going to complain to a surgeon. All the other surgeons before me, they decided that there was only two options left. One is to move, usually move to the United States, or you try something new. I say, well, I think it's time to change something, to try something different. And that's what I decided to do because I realized that. I said, well, is it possible to do that in Canada? Is it legal? And then I, I realized it was perfectly legal to opt out and it was perfectly legal to charge patients if you opt out. My wait list when I was in the public system was approximately 150 patients. And you do about three surgeries a week. So that means approximately uh, a year to a year and a half waiting list. And then the numbers hit me that baby boomers are going to be 60 next year. And we're already a year and a half waiting time for most of the surgery. And there will be an increase in orthopedic surgery need of 120%. So that wait time, which is already one to two years, going to be three or four years. So if we don't try to modify something now, not just money. If you don't try to modify something in the system right now, it will be too late.
Judge, I shall begin my first test in precisely 15 minutes. Why is this child here? He's working on a school project. Before you begin, there are some questions. First, tell us how you arrived... In order to save myself time, let me ask those questions for you. You received the information which Starfleet provided you, fed it into your computer as precisely as humanly possible. Then you did a controlled test. And then, to your astonishment, nothing happened. So, you said, what's going on? This doesn't work. Kosinski's a fraud. You see, I have had this conversation on other Starfleet vessels before. They didn't understand it. Why should you? Hmm. Surely you're not saying it's unexplainable. I am saying I'm not a teacher, nor do I wish to become one. I have neither the inclination nor the time. You have all the time you need. I don't think you understand. This has already been approved by Starfleet Command. But it hasn't been approved by the chief engineer or by me. I didn't know that was necessary. Now you do. Perhaps I should speak to Captain Picard. If you like, it won't change anything. How basic shall I be? I'll leave that to you. The voice of authority versus the voice of wisdom. And what we're going to be doing now is talking about a lot of the comments that were received on our YouTube videos. And there's about 30 videos that we've put on the YouTube channel. It's called Just Right Media. You can go to our website, justrightmedia.org, click on the Follow Us on YouTube, and have a look at those. They deal with a lot of interviews that I've done and a lot of video that we took of our guests here in the studio. And one of the... um, videos we took of a guest in the studio was on Just Right, number 241, March 15th of this year, where we interviewed Lord Christopher Monckton and Christopher Essex here from the University of Western Ontario about climate change. And Tiburcio43, I don't think that's his real name, (laughs) (laughs) but anyway, he responds on uh, our YouTube video of that uh, show. Pseudo-experts encouraging each other's conspiracy theories. If you have no science to back up your views, you have to settle for Moncton. <laughs> Again, it's the uh, authority thing. Yeah, I mean, just just consider the amount of uh, knowledge that was in the room today, that day, not including you and I, <laughs> which is substantial. You have Professor Christopher Moncton, a PhD in applied mathematics, who wrote basically the book. Christopher Essex, you mean? Oh, I'm sorry, Christopher Essex, yes. Uh, applied mathematics, who basically wrote the book or co-wrote the book uh, about climate change. You have uh, Professor Christopher, I mean, Christopher Moncton, yeah, Lord Christopher, Lord Christopher Moncton. Moncton. Getting them mixed up. Again, a graduate, uh, a, college, a university, and, uh, and um, also an expert on climate change, traveling the world, debunking a lot of the IPC stuff. And on how to pursue knowledge. And on how to pursue knowledge. He is a, uh, a multi-math, a, a rather a polymath, um, you know, architect, uh, a games puzzle designer. You know, he has so many credentials to his name. Uh, he's a thinker. He's the voice in that clip, um, uh, the engineer basically say, uh, questioning authority. Mm-hmm. And while that Kaczynski character in that uh, clip was, you should listen to me because I have the approval of Starfleet. Well, prove it. Yeah, prove your knowledge. For the IPCC. Right. <laughs> and this, this fellow, uh, Tiburcio43, is basically saying, I question your authority. Well, okay, that's your right. Here's a great comment from somebody calling himself 1000 Frawley. Beautiful comment. Just have a listen to this. 
After initializing and parametizing hundreds of unknown factors, inserting divergent proxy data and ignoring any difficult natural forcing factors, we ran hundreds of simulations until we obtained the results we wanted, an ensemble of meaningless projected results, which we then averaged. We utilized the deliberately unprincipled component method to homogenize and sensitize this to produce a new hockey stick, which gave a very robust prediction, 95% probability, that we are totally screwing all of you. <laughs> <laughs> well done. More comments about Christopher Moncton. Simply, from Bridge Manify, uh, says, Moncton equals pseudo-authority. Again, about authority. From Zephon 9, the only authority you should accept is of those who are knowledgeable and utilize their reason in everything they say. A badge from a bureaucratic agency, a bachelor's from a university, or a flyer from a political party are just magical trinkets to dazzle the eyes of an audience. Well, you know, I'd agree with that. Well, that's almost someone who doesn't accept any kind of authority. Well, yeah, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> well, no, no, he's, he's, he's accepting anybody who can rationalize his argument, saying use reason, which makes sense. So if Christopher Moncton or the janitor off the street comes in and can validate his argument, good for him. Some other uh, YouTube video comments. For Paul Weston, I, an interview I did uh, several months ago, about six, seven months ago, with uh, the leader of the British Freedom Party, Paul Weston. Sanofion writes, again, I don't think that's his real name, very impressed with 90% of what he had to say. However, I'm very concerned regarding his attitude toward gay people. Of course, he tried to suggest that the BFP is not anti-gay, and one must be thankful for such small mercies. However, he appeared far too uncomfortable in his responses and did not seem to really appreciate the discrimination that gay people have had to endure, even suggesting that gay people should not be treated on an equal footing with heterosexuals, which is, in my view, worrying. <coughs> this from Sid Vid Kid. Being against gay marriage has nothing to do with homophobia. Being pro-gay marriage is to say government can decree anything it likes. Ergo, being pro-gay marriage is being for large, authoritarian, control-freak government. The facts are that gay marriage has never existed because there's no reason for it to exist. Nothing any government decrees can change the facts. And to believe otherwise is magical thinking. Some interesting comments from, uh, from our viewers and listeners out there. This is from Elbazart. I fail to understand why any conservative politician has to deny gay rights. Does homophobia come with the territory? Here we have a politician who wishes to stand for preserving democracy and human rights in the UK, claiming that the Islamification of Europe threatens these values and yet does not see the contradiction in denying a specific group of its rights. No wonder all GLBTs end up voting for left-wing parties. That's an interesting observation, I find. Mm. Another interview I did was with Ingrid Karlqvist from uh, Dispatch International, and she's from she's a journalist in Sweden. And you can watch this video, of course, go to our video channel on YouTube, Just Right Media. I think it's been seen about almost 3,000 times, and I only did it a, four weeks ago, two weeks ago. And that's Amazing. pretty darn good. That's really good. <laughs> you know? yeah. This is from Big Corp TV. No one says a country that is 100% black needs more diversity. No one says that a country that is 100% Asian needs more diversity. No one says that a country which is 100% Oriental needs more diversity. They're, they are already 100% diverse. 
All white countries and only white countries always need to be more diverse. White countries only need stop needing to be more diverse when there are no more white people left in them. Diversity is a code word for white genocide. Anti-racist is a code word for anti-white. I hate to say it, but there's an awful lot of truth to that. And I I know that even just saying that as starkly and as clearly as you just did, um, you could be labeled a white supremacist. Yes. You know, that's that's what white supremacists are. But of course, the issue isn't really about black and white skin color, that is, but about black and white ideas and values. <laughs> that's what the real diversity is about, right? Yes. And the diversity that's being pushed by the left, I don't think, is a diversity of race, but of culture, of ideas, including ideas and cultures whose values are in direct conflict with diversity itself. <laughs> that's the irony of it all. You know, the, the that's le- the hypocrisy yeah, of it and all. And the hypocrisy, yes. Yes. One of our, I don't know, more troubling shows we did was when we interviewed two former detainees at the Elgin Middlesex Detention Center here in London. A veritable gulag. And it still is, and nothing's being done. Nothing's being done. Absolutely nothing. And I've got a file growing on that one. I'm going to explode on that one one day, I'm telling you. Yeah, it was very troubling to actually have those guys sit across the table from us here. and We filmed it and we put it on YouTube, and again, you can go to our YouTube channel to have a look at that at Just Rate Media. But uh, someone calling himself Mr. Blaze One Boy commented, and according to this, uh, he's been a detainee at that particular detention center. I've been there and have a hell of a story to tell. The inmates run the jail. The guards let the fights go on. I've seen a lot and been through a lot. There are good guards, but they fall behind the other guards. I've been beaten there and I've been refused food by the lieutenant. I think that's the uh, one of the older guards, or the, one of the guards. I'm not guards. Enough to talk about prison. guards. Oh, I was going to say prisoner. uh, prisoners. Prisoners. Yeah, yeah, that's what there, I was going to say. Who've been there for longer? Uh, and the guards placed pop, uh, popular inmates who go PC on half-day lockdowns, and they place inmates into ranges where their enemies are. They also force me to either eat my fish, dinner one night, or starve. I'm allergic to fish absolutely draconian what's going on down in that uh, gulag. Despicable. And then, and who's, who's making all the headlines now? The unions. The unions want their their needs looked after. Yes. I think they come, kind of come secondarily, don't they? Now here's, um, there was some other stuff we did on Moncton, of course, um, which was a, an interview. I, I sat down with uh, Lord Christopher Moncton and did a one-hour-long interview. Yeah, separate from the show we did separate here. Separate from the yeah. show, even though I did play it on the show, uh, show number 242 in March. And uh, it's been seen uh, about 1,170 times, last looking at. Now, the thing about that interview is that we didn't talk about climate change a lot. We talked a lot about things, for example, of education and religion and Mm -hmm. Catholicism. And here's some comments about that from uh, W. Jestic on our YouTube channel. You should also be aware that mind control arises from ignorance and lack of education. The ancient Greeks realized this in formulating the uh, trivium. Uh, The trivium is, of course, um, the disciplines of grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Religion is not inherently controlling, but to the uneducated minds, logical fallacies, corruption, and lies pass unnoticed. Most of the manipulated masses are not weak-minded, they merely lack the intellectual tools that enable critical thinking as this knowledge has been hidden. And that's one of the things I took out of that interview with Lord Moncton was his ability to have a very clear way of discussing. And that is the art of rhetoric. Mm -hmm. Be able to 
get across your ideas. That is why he's so popular out there. He speaks exactly what he wants to say in exactly the, the terms that he wants to use. Very clear thinking, very clear speaker, which is why I think he is so popular. Yes. Not only that, I think he's right on most of the issues that he brings up. So have a good look at that interview um, online again and at our YouTube channel, Just Right Media. And uh, just one final point from the same writer who also pointed out on organized religion. He talked about how, um, you know, collective religion and priesthood doesn't have a monopoly on spiritualism, but this is a common view. And he writes that atheism is an axiom and nothing more. For many, it is a conclusion to be defended. But all the belief systems that derive from it are as diverse as the religions of theists. Surprising how few atheists understand or acknowledge this. And I'm thinking, well, that's not true. It's exactly what we've been saying. Atheism is nothing. It's not a belief system. It's a non-belief system. Yeah. So you can't say that all atheists agree on anything, let alone one thing. I think I'm going to do a show about just that. Yeah. The cult of atheism. The cult of atheism. Wow, there's an interesting thing. Well, we'll have to leave that for a future show. And that might be next week. Who knows? We'll be back next week when we return on our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do. Be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. And be right back here. We'll see you. Fade into color and color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. This was bare stasis, Okay, here we go. <laughs> What is it? It's a rent in the space-time continuum. What is it? The stasis room freezes time, you know, it makes time stand still. So when, whenever you have a leak, it must preserve whatever it's leaked into when it's leaked into this room. What is it? Um, it's singularity, a point in the universe where the normal laws of space and time don't apply. What is it? <laughs> oh, a magic door. Well, why didn't you say? Space and time don't apply. What is it? <laughs> oh, a magic door. Well, why didn't you say? <laughs> <laughs>